Hi there, you're listening to Open Mic with Mike Creed. And this is the first time I've attempted this intro. Okay, Mike Creed, why are you doing a podcast? What is a podcast, Mike Creed? Why should we listen to you? You suck at bike racing now. In fact, Mike, you're retiring. Yes, I know. All of these are very valid fucking points, but here you are. You're listening. I am going to curse a little bit. I can't help it. I've once had a colleague tell me this because I have a lack of vocabulary and I really didn't have a comeback for that without something that included a curse word. So I punched him in the neck, made out with his girlfriend, and stole his car. What I'm doing with this podcast is a couple of things. One, I have a constant need for attention, so I'm hoping to generate a little bit of that. I also, not a fan of what I see of my friends kind of getting a little rough housed on Twitter, rightly or wrongly, I don't care. But when you have friends, there's a place in some friendships where, um, right or wrong exist outside that friendship. They're your friends. And I uh, I kind of want to defend my friends. I see these people as people, whereas I think people on Twitter see them as uh, figures. Um, I've always really liked podcasting and talk radio, and I've kind of seen the, I've seen the gap for that within uh, cycling. There are a few podcasts and radio shows out there that are Mm. You know who I'm talking about, or do you? So, with the decline of my career, I'm finding I have a whole lot of free time. And seeing how I'm going to be retiring, I figure I better use uh, my access to these riders while I can. So, I'm going to try to pack in as many interviews as I can for the rest of the year. And if this catches on, I'll probably keep doing it. Now, when I say catches on, really all I need is four or five people. I'm just going to do this for the people that get it. If you get it, if you get what I'm trying to do, humanize these people, see them how I see them, and kind of bring back a more uh, human aspect to cycling, then listen, by all means listen. If you're looking for uh, horrible controversy and me to ask the hard questions, it's probably not going to happen. Um, you wouldn't necessarily always ask hard f- questions from your friends, and it's not what I'm here to do. I, um, I love these people. I think they're great. Not all the time, but you get what I'm saying. Rambling Mike stops talking now. Or do I? Because... My first guest is Jonathan Vodders. Vodders and I go way back. Met him when I was 16. Um, became a teammate of his on Prime Alliance somewhere in the early 2000s. Then he became my boss. So I've had all of these dynamics uh, with John the Vodders. I've had friend, colleague, boss, and then for a while, enemy. Um... I think the, and a large part of that was my own fault. I was uh, I was immature and I didn't treat him like a boss. And 
when the back problems that uh, was now have ended my career sparked up, I didn't know how to deal with them. I didn't know how to reach out to my boss. I just treated him like a friend, and that ended up costing me my job. Um, and when it cost me my job, I uh, I definitely treated it as a personal slight instead of a business decision. That being said, I kind of wanted to get um, some closure with this. And I, you know, Waters is a really interesting personality on Twitter and in general, of course. Um, he always engages what I consider trolls. And I think, I mean, and I think he probably goes over the line a little bit on Twitter with the um, reaching out he does. He, we, we, we disagree on this. Um, I talked to him a bit about it on the first show I did, but that show now is in vapor because somebody here doesn't know how to plug in a microphone. And there's a whole episode that is now gone. So I appreciate Vodders giving me two chances to talk to him. And uh, considering it was a, less than a week before the tour, it was a very considered action of the man. Um, anyway, hope you enjoy the show. I'll talk to you soon. You know, like, how long it's been since I've been to school where I literally have to say, like, okay, so you read this, then what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, believe me, it's, it's about the same thing for me. It's, uh, I mean, I, you know, I definitely have to try harder than my classmates. <laughs> Are you like the oldest one by some? No, not at all, because it's an executive MBA program, meaning that like you can't even do this program unless like, sure. you're sort of already in like a leadership position in your industry. So no, there's lots of like 35, 40, 45 year olds, but nonetheless, like you know, most of them already have like another master's degree in something else, and you know. So why why did you go back to school? I just you know. It has to be a reason. You do things for reasons. No, I mean, we already talked about this yesterday. Oh, but yeah, so yeah, but yeah, it wasn't in the. Just so everybody listening knows, we talked for forty minutes. I occupied almost an hour of your time, and it was pretty much for nothing. So I'll try to make today quick, and we just like loosened up, like right. you know. <laughs> yeah, it was just some stretching. Um, yeah, uh, I just I feel like. The leadership in cycling lacks uh, business education and experience, and as opposed to going around and criticizing that, I figured I should probably remedy it with myself first. I have, than, a, I have a theory that you're gonna run for UCI president as soon as the Garmin thing runs up. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I mean, I you know, I mean, right now I. I actually really like Brian Cookson, so anyway, hopefully he'll win the election. How does the election process even work? I I, I don't know exactly, <laughs> um, but it's essentially each uh, federation designates a. Um, oh, sorry. It's no, further over there. Yeah, come on. Yeah, each each federation designates a person who votes. So in theory, like USA Cycling would designate Steve Johnson. I mean, they could designate someone else, I think, but he's probably the most likely candidate. 
it's typically it's a present. It's the present yeah. And then typically they vote as a block, meaning like, you know, North America will vote as one block or, or yeah. the Americas are one block and then like Asia's one block. But it doesn't have to be. They actually can vote separate from one another. It's just that the pattern has been is that the continent sort of, you know, vote as a block. And so, you know, right now, it seems as if, like, Europe uh, will definitely vote for Cookson. Like, pretty much all of the, the various Federation presidents there have, have, have said that they vote for Cookson. Um, but I, I don't, and I would imagine probably, like, in Indonesia, Australasia, or whatever, that that, or Oceania, I think they call it, I think that is also sort of, that most of their designees are, are predisposed to vote for Cookson as well, but then... The Americas, I don't know, um, and uh, you know, like Africa, I don't have any idea. Asia, I don't really know. Pat's big in Asia, it seems like. Yeah. He's always bringing races there. Yeah, I mean, who knows? It, it's a, it's it's a bizarre process, you know. And and they, the the actual person who votes doesn't have to be definitively designated until like twenty four hours before the actual election. So it's like you could just change people or. Really? Yeah, it's I don't know. Do you think it's but? Oh, it may, is there a better? Pro- would you imagine that there's a better process? Of course, this? it makes no sense at all. Who do you think should get the? I vote? mean, you know, you just just even with us, like, do you do you, you know, do you feel that Steve Johnson represents your interests? I don't feel like any. Yeah, I mean, I would. I hate to pick him because he's the figurehead, but I I've never felt like anybody represented my interests. Right. So. Now, it's not to say that Steve Johnson's a good guy or a bad guy. Right. Um, you know, he, he's sort of been both to me at various times. <laughs> Is it his um, job to represent our interests or to make money? Well, no, I mean... Or is that just too easy? No, no, that, that, that's oversimplifying it. I mean, you know, his... his I mean, he, he's not... Like, if cycling gets 10,000 new licensees and grows whatever else, like, it's not like he's on a... He's not getting a bonus for that or anything. Sure. I mean, he, he's a, just a salaried member of a federation or a president of a federation. So, I mean, he's doing his job because it's his job, and he's probably trying to do the best job that he can. So, I don't, I don't think he's, I don't think he has any particular like financial incentives to do it one way or the other. But that still doesn't answer the question. Like, you know, does he represent your interests? And there are some people that would say yes, he does, and there are other people that would say no, and. Um, you know, well, in fact, he's not, he, he's an employee, he's not even elected, actually. Steve Johnson is not the president, excuse me, he's the CEO of USA Cycling. So, that's different, like, he's, he's an employee, he's not even elected in that position. So, if he is the designee, which I'm not actually sure, or it could be Sean Petty could be the designee as yeah. well, or, um, I'm not, I'm not even sure, I mean, remember Mark Abramson? He was, yeah, the, yeah he was the president of USAC for a while, and... Jim Ockowitz, so maybe they would, could be the, but anyhow, I just feel like it doesn't really matter. We, we could discuss that all night, but I don't really feel like any of those people particularly are, are representing, um, you know, the, 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 when it comes to sort of the president of the, of the International Federation, are they representing the interests of, you know, the athletes and the teams that are in professional cycling? And my answer to that is no, I don't think they are. Like you know, maybe I mean maybe they are actually representing correctly the interests of you know 
mountain biking or women's cycling or junior development or U22. That's a complete possibility. In my opinion, just when it comes down to the athletes that are, that are in professional cycling teams and the people in management or employees of professional cycling teams worldwide, that the interests aren't, aren't, aren't represented at the federation level whatsoever. In fact, it really, it's just a poor system for professional sports at all. I mean, you look hmm. at, like, just take NFL, Major League Baseball as an example. You know, you don't have like all these various federations. And no, it's a professional league. It's sixteen teams or twenty teams or whatever contracted to doing certain events in various stadiums. And you know, the governance is set up like a business. Like, be, like in cycling, I have a business. Yeah. You know, Kelly Benefits has a business. Optum, sorry, has a benefit business. Uh, Front City Jew has a business. But they're they're all totally separate. The NFL is one business. Yeah. Now, there are various owners of the franchise. But they all profit share. Yeah. There are various owners. So, you know, Pat Bowen owns the Denver Broncos. So, he's an owner of a franchise. But it's still one business. Yeah. And cycling kills itself by not going down that road because it's... The teams and the athletes get so caught up in not only trying to be competitive with each other on the bike... But also being competitive with each other in sponsorship markets sure. and all this other crap and rumors. It's very cannibalistic. Off. Yeah. And so it's these little tiny businesses fighting one another. What's the NFL fighting? NFL's fighting Major League Baseball. Yeah. Like from a business standpoint, teams aren't fighting one another. Are they are they, you know, are they going after each other on the field? Sure. But you know, from a business standpoint, they're not. It's very they're unified. Not, yeah. When then anytime something comes out bad, any kind of bad press, it's always unified. Exactly. Cycling shows. I mean, no. they f- they fine athletes for talking out about a ref or. Yeah. Well, think of it. You know, in the NFL, when you have controversial play calls or a doping case or whatever, yeah. right? Basically, you have one representative from the NFL that says, you know, this is our statement. Here's what we're doing about this. This player was fined this much, suspended yeah. this much, whatever, right? And so the story, as the press goes, is this. this. You really can't get anything else out of it because yeah. no one else is allowed. And if, a, and if a player criticizes that decision, he's immediately fined. Right. Cycling, something happens. You say one thing, I say another thing. So the opinions just roll and roll and roll, and they can just take up pages and pages sure, sure. and pages. That's why, like, any controversy, and this isn't limited to doping, yeah. like, any controversy sure, in cycling, sure. whether it's, like, you know, a guy puts somebody in the barriers where any controversy in cycling ends up just being days and days and Do you remember days. When, uh, when Frank Schleck <laughs> used the camelback in the front? Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Like, how what a non-story that was. And it... But it's just days and You know, but I think, I think cycling, like, the racing is so... For a vast amount of it is so boring. Right. I mean, it. Nobody really wants to say it, but it, cycling until like the final ten k, mm-hmm. unless you really know what you're looking for, right, is pretty freaking boring. And I think controversy and uh, the soap opera nature is actually more exciting than the racing for them. For, huh. So I feel like that's why. Those stories are always going to get the most clicks. Mm-hmm. Like if I called up Daniel Benson and said, uh, <clears throat> "Vodder's uh, smells like shit," right, and his hair is shit, yeah. right. 
totally that's not even true by the way <laughs> I feel that would get more clicks than a race result oh yeah I, mean, I, I think you're right so I, I mean I don't know how to change that I feel like the races need to be different like they need to come up with more creative yeah I mean they're, they're, they're I think creative formatting for sure I think you gotta be careful because there is a certain tradition to cycling and you can I just don't. You should. I just don't want cycling to die in the sword of tradition. Like, no. Does it mean? No, it, no. If, if mean, it means like double days or team time trials or whatever, like it's legit. Yeah, I mean, of course the riders are going to complain. And everybody's going to complain. But oh yeah. If it gets people to watch but the that's sport, the thing is it's very easy because because again, there's never a unified plan. Yeah. There, there is no strategy. Like yeah. the strategy would be that you know everyone comes in sits down and figures out okay what are the you know what are the six things we need to do to move the sport and we're going to simplify the calendar we're going to change the way the race or whatever that's a strategy for moving the sport forward in, in you know in a good way maybe it works maybe it doesn't but it's a, there there is no strategy yeah. there are lots of uh ideas and individual movements and sort of tactical changes of well let's move this race two days back and let's yeah, let's yeah. you know well this race got canceled so we'll put this other there's a lot and, but that's those are just small scale tactical it's, it's, movements it's making a bed and but there's not a strategy yeah. and that's what I mean just an overall broad view I do not see any any real strategic thinking in cycling which is um, it's funny to think that like a and but it's hard to even if you wanted to have strategic thinking, it's really because it would just get shouted down by yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> well, because people don't like change, right? And something that is traditional. Mm-hmm. Like uh, when you were talking about not unified, feeling like I remember being really annoyed when the race radio band came in, right? Mm-hmm. And the pro tour teams, I was just like, this is bullshit this is not happening and then the UCI relented to some extent and but now division 2 division 3 teams never use radio we don't we don't have radios and those dangers still exist for us but you never hear the pro tour guys say like well this is bullshit oh I mean listen it was only it was only I mean we fought it all the way down the line but it was the problem was is that it it was only when it finally came to a head um, you know at, at Tour of Beijing you know, before, uh, you know, it, right before Tour of Beijing. Um, and uh, that's, you know, that's what, that's what, that's why it sort of was able to get stopped at the World Tour level. Here, actually, I have something you can't, you can't record this, but let's see if I can find it. Okay, so at this point, Jonathan asked me to turn off the tape and played a voice message from a sporting official who was very angry at him for, um, some of the comments in the press. Anyway, that's not the point. We continue the interview. But anyway, that um, you know, it, it, it you know, you're right. The, the rights of continental teams and pro continental teams and women's teams shouldn't have been overlooked in that process. But it basically came down. What do you feel like with the with the women cycling, like? Because I don't know much about it, right? But 
to me, like the, the equal prize money thing at races, that seems like pretty obvious. Like the right. prize money list is pretty shitty anyway, for the most part these days. Right. So like, okay, now the winner doesn't get a thousand because we split it with the women. Now the winner gets 700. Like, right. who are you really, would you ever feel comfortable saying that in front of a woman? Yeah. Like, oh, I, I think that's fine. I just, I think that, but no, but what my question was giving you was that, so is there a way to make, they say like, uh, salary minimums, mm-hmm. but I mean, I, I would love if that was possible, but I don't know how that's possible when there's so few teams, like they seem like they're so financially strapped anyway. If you say, oh, you have to pay these riders yeah, I mean, 25, the team th- just disappears. Then, am I missing something on that? No, no, you're not. I mean, that's what I was going to say is that. That while you know, while creating minimum salaries on women's teams, it, I, I see it's okay. F- I s- see the fundamental idea there, and 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 of course, women cyclists should be compensated appropriately for like right. the work and effort that they do. But it's not addressing the core problem. It's cart before the horse. The core problem is why is women's cycling never televised? Why is it covered to a, a you know much smaller degree than men's cycling? Why is yeah. And the media outlets would say, well, because we can't get an audience when we do cover it. And so, you know, let's go back to the same thing that you just asked a couple minutes ago about, well, maybe the format needs to be different. Maybe I, I, I don't actually have the answer, but what I do know is that when we, you know, you and I were discussing yesterday, the return on investment that professional cycling teams can offer in terms of media exposure. And, uh, when we, put those same metrics to our women's team in 2011, which was one of the most successful women's teams in the world and had the reigning world champion on the team, uh, the, 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 the metrics were not there for a sponsor. So we, we almost, you know, the studies that we did from a sponsorship viability standpoint, we basically had to just throw those out the window and say, I, you know, let's not use those. You let's, couldn't present those. You, we couldn't present them because it basically, um, said that the team wasn't worth as much as we were paying for it. Yeah. So we had to, to try to sell the sponsorship from just the sort of boots on the ground. You know, uh, this is going to have an association with the men's team. We have the world champion. We tried to uh, sort of an emotional play yeah. uh, to, to keep the team alive. And it, it, it didn't work, quite frankly. Because I think basically most of the time we use a pretty pretty metrics driven numbers driven presentation when we yeah. come into sponsorships we don't we don't we don't play the hard strings a whole lot we we're pretty focused on you know this team will bring you greater impact to your product than buying 30 second ad slots on television yeah. uh but we couldn't we couldn't we couldn't go down that road with the with the women's team and i didn't realize that um thanks chuck um Put it in the freezer, dude. Thank you. Um, but yeah, I didn't realize that uh, until until we had a team, and you know, Cervello had sponsored the, the team, but um, I, I had no idea how hard. Was it that was hard for you when that when you had to fold that up? The criticism that came from that. Yeah, that was tough. I mean, both with that and the U twenty three team, both times the it was tough. Um, it's like, I understand how it could be taken as a weird cop-out, but it was almost like when a big sponsor leaves, like the, uh, says, oh, we're not renewing. 
there's always like sometimes like this backlash against that sponsor for not renewing instead of like a thanks or like yeah for supporting in the first place I mean I guess I can yeah. understand the backlash a little bit because the men's team was still continuing but still it was like it wasn't uh, you still did it for how many years did you have a team yeah oh wow the U23 team yeah. you know quite a while the women's team it was only one year with us but Cipello had had it two years prior to that yeah, it wasn't. Neither one of those things were very fun to fold up, but we always were under the perspective of that, and, and I think sometimes people misunderstand this, that both of those teams should be standalone entities, meaning that they're bringing in enough sponsorship to support the budget of that group. So the U23 team, you know, Chipotle was bringing in enough money to support the U23 budget, or with the women's team, Cervello was bringing in enough money to support women's team and when both of those things stopped um, we and we didn't find replacements then there really wasn't much to do I think the assumption was from a lot of people why don't you just yank money out of the men's pro team to support those entities and the fact of the matter is is that um, one as you know most world tour contracts the only the only place you can yank it out of the pro men's team is by getting rid of some riders right it's only there, there's no other most of the budget is 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 so tight you there's there's not a place to pull you know the women's team cost over a little over a million dollars and the u23 team cost i think around eight hundred thousand or thereabouts so there was no there's no place to pull that out from right other than just axing some riders axing some riders exactly and when we looked at it to you know to ax enough riders to come up with $1.8 million so you can have a women's team and a U23 team, it actually would impact the team in such a way that we, on the point system, you might not make it into the world tour. Yeah. Because you just threw yeah. a bunch of your points out the door. And by the way, you may or may not even have the right to throw that out the door anyway because the, the riders have yeah. signed contracts. So, um, it wasn't as easy as everybody thought it was. No. You, do you feel like being a director, like, do you, I mean, this is, a, I guess, a self-serving question, but do you feel like it's, like, almost thankless in a way? Well, I mean, the psychological fact of the matter is, is that a lot of cycling fans know that they could never be a Tour de France rider. But you they know? feel like they could be. That's, that's, that's but interesting. But they think, well, I could go out and get a sponsor. And well, they're I good with Excel. Yeah, and I could do this, and I could, you know, I could tell the team when to chase, and I know when there's a crosswind, and, and so, wow. so I think that uh, I think you've got a lot of cycling fans that 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 basically, you know, they respect the guys who are racing because they know they can't do that because they've right. been out on a bike and they right. know what what it's like to you know to do that sort of mileage and speed, but you know, they feel like to, it's fantasy football. To do what I do, I think there are a lot of people that, that really feel that they could do it a lot better than I could. And so, therefore, um, yeah, it's thankless because yeah. uh, because because they think, ah, what an idiot. Why did he do that? Yeah. And, you know, in their and mind, they're probably they the only real better situation. You have to, they're probably, it's probably fleeting, but there's, I'm sure there's some, like, small, quick moments with people and the friends where you guys can acknowledge how much work went into it. Do you have guys like, like maybe David Millar? Or... Oh, I mean, for sure, for sure, there are there are there, there are moments where people that are important to me will acknowledge that. Yeah. Um, but it's not as often as you'd think. No, no. <laughs> I think that's the, always the funniest thing with friends is yeah. you're always 
the last to like compliment each other sometimes. Yeah, no, that's very true. So the Tour de France coming up. How many guys are going for the final nine spots right now? Ten. Uh, yeah, ten. Uh, and training camps being. But it's really I've already designated the nine and then one alternate, and if something happens, then but the training camp is ten people. There will be ten people at the camp because I feel like you know the the Tour de France is the one. The, almost any other race of the year, some guy gets sick at the last minute yeah. or injured or crashes or whatever. You know, they're not a hundred percent. Maybe they start, maybe they don't, but whatever. If you start with eight, sure. You start with seven, you'll be okay. The Tour de France, that's not acceptable to just yeah, yeah, yeah. do that. So we we go all the way up to the last minute with with ten, and and then, but the one guy does know that he's the alternate. He does know. Yeah. Is that the hardest part? Is it? I guess it's not the it hardest. It's very part. hard. I, I you know a couple of days ago I had to make some a, a lot of really tough phone calls because, you know, basically you. Starting in November or December, we designate the 13 guys that yeah. are on the tour long team. And I don't designate alternates or it's just, here's the group that's trained for the tour. So they all are 100% ready for the tour, or at least the best that they possibly can be ready for the tour. You know, Have you ever had a guy just bulldog June. his way onto the tour? He was in that original 13 and he sure. just... Sure. Ramones. Ramones. 2011. Rowan Dennis this year. Just bulldogged it. Well... Uh, you know, the guy who took the race lead in the Dauphiné. Yeah, yeah right, pro. right, right. Um, I'm not going to, you know, if, if he, after two weeks, he's tired, we'll send him home. But I feel like you, you can't, you can't leave home a talent like that. I, you, I mean, you got to recognize that and say, okay, this guy needs to start learning. We start rambling here for a little bit. And for the sake of everybody's time, we went ahead and made a few edits, so... I'm going to go ahead and pick back up when we get on the subject of good friend Alan. No, 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 no. I, I, haven't, talk, I haven't spoken to Alan in four or five years. Or about, yeah, three or four years. Not, not really one word, honestly. What, what was... Because, I mean, you don't have to get into it if you don't want to, but it's just when I was on the team, like, he was the, yeah. dude, he was the dude, you know? Yeah. And, I mean, to, yeah. to be honest, like, Alan's a really great guy, but yeah. it seemed like he didn't have, like, a... Um, there was... No secrets. It was just training. It was just oh, yeah. hard, just structured training, essentially. Yeah, really yeah, fast. Yeah. No, he, he's an excellent trainer. Um, just you know, f from my perspective, uh, when he decided to leave the team uh, to work for Radio Shack, uh, he handled it very poorly. He was not honest about a lot of things. Um, can I tell you about the rumor I heard? Mm. I heard a rumor that you offered him a pay cut and Ro and Radio Shack offered him a big pay bump. No, I didn't offer him a pay cut. Okay. I just didn't offer him a raise. You just didn't offer him a raise. Okay. Yeah. So that was... Well... Ever since then, it kind you know, of went I mean, sideways. I, you know, Alan wanted to cut back his hours. Oh, okay. Yeah, Alan wanted to cut back his hours. So there may have actually been heat because he didn't want to go out on the road. He didn't want to do this. And I said, okay, well, that's fine. So then we need to come up with you know, a guy that can go out on the road. Sure. And, and he said, okay, well, I'll start looking for a guy. And it was, you know, at that point it was fairly amicable, but he didn't, you know, he told me he wanted to go back into research at the university of Colorado and that he really wanted to cut back his hours and not really be on the road. And so in, in a way, what you're saying is true in that, you know, I did say, well, okay, I'll give you a pay cut, but it was just apples and oranges because, you know, what he ended up doing with Radio Shack was he was on the road, you know, 300 days a year with the team. And, and right. so, you know, I was trying to accommodate what he wanted 
And then he just got a very large financial offer and just immediately, you know, dropped it. And I have, that happens all the time in business. And I don't have a problem with that. How it was handled, I had a real problem with. Was there tension between you guys leading up to that, or no, mm-hmm. no? But it, but, but once, once it that happened, how it was handled, um, a lot of the people that he immediately tried to hire away. It's not like okay, I'm leaving. It's also like I'm leaving, and I'm going to try to take. He was cherry picking. Take all of the people that that you know have been key to your program for a while, and also take them. And at that moment in time. You know, this is 2009. It's a big Things between up. myself and Lance and Johan Bernil are not good. I mean, right. it's very tense. I mean, they're, they're, you know, at that point in time, they are actively trying to sort of snuff out our team so that, you know, so the Radio Shack is the American team. And they, they you know, they put a lot of effort into that. I mean, you can yeah. see it with Taylor Finney, you can see it with Alan. There were a lot of other people that they tried to hire, you know, sort of behind the scenes and and um you know they i mean they they definitely did their best to to put us on the back foot mm. um and um you know alan i think really bought into that and almost uh, he uh, maybe was even angry with me i'm not really sure but it's, he, i mean that would make sense he was angry at something yeah he i mean but he really overstretched uh you know, he really, really, he, he, he just handled it poorly and, and, you know, would, would try to convince, you know, we would have a new sports scientist and he would try to convince that new sports scientist that, that, you know, that they should really not be our sports scientist or that they should, you know, he, he did a lot of things that, that were, that were very anger driven, um, and, 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 and fundamentally not ethical. And so I just haven't spoken to him and and I don't really see any reason to. Surely you guys in each other races though. You guys yeah, but we don't, we don't speak to each other. It's huh. a bet's a It's weird though, right? When you have like friends and it's almost, yeah. the sad thing is like, I think, don't know if you should ever do any business with your friends. Like Yeah, in a way, I mean, it's one of those things where clearly Alan was angry with me about something. Yeah. Um, or he needed to make himself angry about something with me because, you know, he had to sever the relationship to take the money. Yeah. I don't know. But I do know that, uh, yeah, it was tough. I mean, it's, um, I think, you know, he, he was, I mean, he was key with a lot of, you know, like Pate. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, like you take Alan Lim away, Pate would have never made it back into the world tour or anywhere close. I mean, Alan was like his... Babysitter. Yeah, that's. I, I was gonna say something a little more positive. Than I was the best man in his wedding. I could say that. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like Alan. You know, he, he. I mean, look at the number of guys that he worked with that are not. You know, you Friedman, Pay Brad Huff. You know, all these guys were. He brought them up to like a new level. You know, as far as training. You know, so at. Uh, I mean, there's obviously a lot of a lot of history there, but man, that that last little part. I mean, he, you know, he whatever it was, he 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 he, he kind of. But it was yeah. Some I think it's, it's probably natural. I think with friends and business ending, like yeah. I know for us, like 
I'd never gone into business with a friend before, you right. know, like, and I mean, I met you when I was 14, maybe right. 14, 15. I don't even know if you remember that. Yeah. yeah. The Colorado state do. road championships. Yeah, yeah. No, I remember Pate, like just tagging like a freaking lunatic and that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I remember that very well. And also, I remember like the, we did the Deer Creek time trial. Yeah. And, and you were. I almost beat Ben. Yeah, you almost beat Christian. Like, really close to being Christian. I remember that vividly. I gave him endless shit about that. Yeah, I was, I was really happy about that. <laughs> but, uh... Because I had... So, we, I knew he was a friend first. And then on Prime Alliance, obviously. Right. And then we traveled around this van. And then... Right. Uh... You know, and then... Then on Tia Craft for a couple of years. And, yeah, like, I my, my back problems, like, first started up. And... I mean, through my own ignorance, I just thought it was going to go away and didn't pay too much mind to it. Right. And then, I don't know, like somewhere along the line, like, I, f I feel like I probably didn't treat you like a boss to the full, at all times. Well, I think there's probably a lot of people like that because I try to relate to people on a personal level and, and sometimes I let that, you know, go a little bit too far because, I don't know, I just, I, I don't, I don't believe that life is quite as serious as everyone makes it out to be and so I but there would be times where you would you would lash out at me too yeah oh yeah no and I mean it was, that's, it's, 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 it was weird because like I didn't know how to respond at that point like right it's like sort of uh, you know I would be your friend your friend your friend your friend but then when X, Y, and Z happened then all of a sudden I'd be your boss and like that's a big dichotomy it, but it was weird because I think you were so I was not mature enough or smart enough to say like okay he's reacting as a boss now Right. Instead of be like, what the fuck, dude? Like, gee, right. you know, like, right. I don't know. I will, I wonder what could have like happened differently. Like, I don't know if I, is it supposed to happen that way? Like, is that just natural? Like, oh, you just have regrets when you're 22 and 23 like that. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think, you know, listen, I, you know, the history of this team of slipstream in general, going all the way back to the, beginning you know we've always had really smart guys on the team yeah and when you have really smart guys on the team they have their own opinions and they have their own way of doing things and they don't want to be told that that's wrong or that's different or and they they don't like it when you know there's pushback on their on their focus or ideas or whatnot and but in the end of the day when you have an organization like that you got to have somebody that's in charge that's you know moving in a certain direction and I think I always hire smart I like the fact that people don't take everything I say as gospel and just okay I'll do exactly I, I think that that's healthy it's not always fun but it's healthy it, it makes an organization go up to like if I get pushback from people it makes me think okay well how could I handle that differently yeah um, and that's the reason I've always and, and you're just one of many examples of guys that are really intelligent that have come through the program and that have gotten into it with me at one point or another. Yeah. And I don't hold that against anyone, but at the same point in time, usually, as you know, like I've sort of come to the decision that I'm going to, you know, okay, I'm, this is the way I'm going and this is the way I'm doing it. And if you don't like it, well, you know, there's the door. Doesn't mean that I don't think in my head, you know, did I handle that correctly? You know, is is this is does this person have a point? I mean, of course I do. Yeah. Um, but do you like look back at any of the? And I'm not talking about me in particular. Uh, do you look back at in the way like any of those 
kids from TI Craft, and then there became a, a break point where you had to let them go. Do you like regret any of those, like how they went, or do you just is it? I I, I mean I feel that some of them I could have handled better. Yeah. I don't. There's there's no one that I felt like really. There's no one I've ever lost from the organization one way or the other that I that I felt um, that they came off the organization and went on to flourish somewhere else and, and I was kicking myself thinking what an idiot I am for having you know let that person go I, that so far hasn't right. really happened Mike Freeman did this one Nature Valley that is true <laughs> but but at the same point in time there are a lot of a lot of uh, you in letting people go and, and changing the directions sorry no don't worry about it um, that I could have handled a whole lot differently. Yeah. I mean, and just been. I, I didn't understand sometimes that 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 sometimes it's it's sort of better to give people a little more feedback pretty far out that they're you know that, that and deal with the fact that they're going out the door as opposed to just sort of hoping. See, what I would always do is okay. In my head, I'm gonna give this guy one more chance. He's got ten more races this year, and one of those races he's gonna win, and then I'm gonna keep him on the team. And then it wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. And all of a sudden, you get to the last race, and I hadn't really given that person any feedback that I was considering cutting them. But in my head, I had already been sort of just giving them second and third chances for two months. Yeah. And so then all of a sudden, you know, September first or whatever, I'm sorry, I can't give you a contract. And to them, it's like what why didn't you say something you know a month ago or, or whatever and 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 I would be thinking to myself well I did but then I would realize well yeah I, I said that to myself but I was this is the fundamental problem is that I'm always an optimist I'm and I'm always thinking well you know just one more race and this guy's gonna he's gonna make it he's gonna you know I've always been super optimistic that way and sometimes that optimism leads you to procrastinate hard decisions yeah is it You've always seemed pretty firm in those decisions, though. So it seems. Yeah, usually once I make up my mind, it's pretty made up. Uh, um, I think that's what we got, man. Um, we talked about it yesterday, but we uh, we lost uh, audio. So, wh what do you feel like you miss the most about racing, and what do you? And to add on to that, what do you want? How do you want to be a better director? Do you want to be a better director? And if so, how do you want to improve? <laughs> well, I want to be a better manager. Be a better manager. Yeah, yeah, director. I'm a good director. I'm not a great director. And I'll be the first person to say that. Um, you know, the, I can do the job when it needs to happen. But I'm always limited by the fact that I also have my managerial duties. So... Whereas, for example, when Charlie Wigelius is in the car now, he's not thinking, this is how much this guy is getting paid, this is how much this guy is getting paid, this guy has a contract for two more years, this guy is coming off contract, this guy has a bonus, this guy doesn't, this guy has an offer from BMC, this guy, whatever, right? But when I'm directing a race, I know all of that. Yeah, you shouldn't know that at times. You shouldn't know that. And, and it basically, it's sometimes it hamstrings your decisions mm -hmm. because 
you're playing one game as far as the race is going, oh, you're yeah. playing another game as far as the long-term welfare of the team. And I found that when those two games come together, you tend to make very jumbled and poor decisions. Uh, and what do you what do you miss most about being a racer? Um, well, I think I talked about it yesterday, but time trialing. I I miss. I I don't miss going down rainy wet descents. I don't miss putting elbows into guys. I don't. I I really don't miss the peloton as a whole because. Peloton's a pretty gnarly place, you yeah. know? It's yeah. it's scary. Yeah. And there's very little margin for error and you know, and people die. Not very often, but yeah. um but I miss that perfect time trial that or team time trial, even though that's a little dangerous too, but um when just everything comes together and you're able that you're in great form and you're able to just completely empty the tank the second you cross the line that, that you just have gone as far as your body could possibly go I miss I miss that feeling and like figuring out psychologically how to get all the way to the end of that tank because it's not that easy and not very many people can actually do it I, I even in the pro ranks there's tons of guys that are incredibly strong when they've got a carrot right in front of them in the form of another rider or yeah. finish line or whatever and you put them out by themselves and they just can never push themselves that hard because in a time trial it's so easy just to let off the pedals just a little bit right you know and all of a sudden start feeling sorry for yourself yeah it just it hurts like half as much when you know it's just oh just lose a little bit and I, I miss being able to overcome that and, and say no I'm not going to let off just that little bit I'm going to actually go you know one degree further and I don't know that, that was that was where I got the race satisfaction racing for sure Cool, man. Well, thanks for talking and sure. thanks for being my director for a couple of years and being a friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. stuff. Oh, man, did you think that was the end of the interview? No. No, it wasn't. I thought it was the end of the interview. Jonathan thought it was the end of the interview. But being Jonathan, he likes to talk. We just sat around. We relaxed. You can hear some drinks being consumed. Vodder just said, you know, why don't you turn the microphone back on? So, you know, those days with you and Huff and Chad Hartley, and I remember, I don't think you went on it, but that trip to Route de Sud that we did. Yeah, I didn't go on that one. And, uh, I mean, you know, Will and, you know, Micro. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I had a blast. Like, I've never had that much fun, like, ever in... What about those track camps, dude? How yeah. weirdly insane. Yeah, I mean, it was... But, you know, but in the end, like, even though that was totally insane and it didn't quite work the way you wanted it to, you know, there was a little method in the madness. It got a lot of attention, you know? Yeah. It was just like, oh, these guys are trying to, you know, do something that's never been done the federation hated us for even trying i mean they were, they were just annoyed that we were even attempting yeah. to do it and but i don't know i, I love that i mean that was where the, the the whole analytical thought process really started working you know i remember just it's like okay how could we do this like what can we do different like how you know, you know yeah. i mean and that's and that's sort of gone on and on and on into into you know into garmin but it was I, I thought that 
No, you're right. It's I think you learn lessons that you take for granted now. Yeah. Like, yeah. Absolutely. Cause. Yeah. Like, cause speaking with like with the you and I dynamic, like I right. remember, I remember like two key moments that like fucked me up. Like, there was we did um it was Cirque de la Sart. Yeah. And I got food poisoning. And like two other guys on the team got food poisoning. Remember that? And we were out the ass in like right. ten kilometers. Right. Right. And uh, I knew the race was really important, right? Because it was the oh, it was like might have been one of our first ASO races, right? And uh, you would come over for it, and I think right. Doug was kicking around, right? And uh, I got food poisoning. I forget, maybe Frankie got uh, Prezian got food poisoning, right? And uh, I just I was like, oh, we gotta finish the race, we right? This first stage and. I think I made time cut the first day. The other guys didn't make time cut. I dropped right. them coming to town. I made right. time cut by like 10 seconds. I had like so tired. Right. Like I actually was like crying on the finish line. Like I'd right. never been that fucked. Right. And like seeing like, you guys were like viscerally disappointed. Right. And it was. No, that's, I mean, I can imagine how, how hard that was. You know, it's funny because I think the reason that we were so viscerally disappointed is it it didn't actually have anything to what I remember from that is why I was so disappointed is that if you look back Pate basically made the winning break but then just thought oh this is way too early and just sort of backed off and went back to the field which was like 10 meters behind what ended up being the winning break like it was you know on sure. that, that hard climb really early on sure and that and it was Voight and like a couple other people had like gone away and like Pate basically went up to it, got right to the back wheel, and then he looked back, and you know, I mean, you know Pate as well as I do. He looked back, saw the peloton was right there, and was like, ah, ah, I shouldn't be wasting energy out here, and just sort of backed off and sort of floated it a little bit on the climb, and like the brake went away, and like that was it. Game over. It was like that was that was the way that was, and so what I was so disappointed is you know you hear on the radio, you know, whatever Pate's number was, number eighty two is you know has joined the break and then you know number 82 has dropped off the break and and then i don't know i forget who the three or four guys that were winning but they went on to to win it was the winning break and like and paid it just basically soft pedal it because it's a gc break too probably. yeah oh yeah that was it that was the done <laughs> <laughs> that was like yeah they finished like five minutes ahead of the next guy but I think it, it speaks to like my immaturity as a person too to not see you as a boss at that time and to see right. you as a friend and yeah, but I mean, it's like rough lessons to learn too. Like, I think it was my, my final yeah. race for the longest time. I thought it'd be my final race in Europe. Do you remember right. that we did a race in Portugal? Right. And again, my my back was really bad, and I was just ignoring right. it and trying to. And I dropped out and 10, right. 10 20k. Just dropped out. Just turned around, went back to the hotel. Right. And I got like an email from you, and it was just like, dude, you're done. Like, I can't save you anymore. Right. Like Waltz wants you out. Like like those were like two times I was like I remember thinking like fuck dude like Yeah. This No, that's I mean they always say that you know, make your make your uh make your business partners into friends, don't make your friends into business partners. <laughs> I've never heard that. Yeah. That's a really good one. Yeah. But uh yeah, I mean I, 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 I mean like... I look back on that as you know, as such a good time, but then I can still tell that Brad or uh, you know Chad Hartley or it, you know, I think you've overcome it to this point, but there are there are a lot of people on that team that that still sort of 
you know, they're angry that that I didn't give them a fourth and fifth chance, you know, that I kind of right. gave them like a second and third, but not a fourth and fifth. And, and that, and that I was so close to them and worked so, you know, cause it was tight knit. I mean, it was, when we did training camps, it wasn't just like, oh, here's your training camp. That was almost, I mean, it was almost the, um, I mean, we that's were, probably where the anger comes from is how tight knit what it yeah. was. Whereas if you stayed in a, in a building in Denver from on high, right. It might not have been that. Right. But that's the same, but that's the same, you know, as we talked about it yesterday, that's the same thing as you questioning why sometimes I get so intimately involved with just random folks on Twitter and that fundamentally I'm, I always believe that this is the person I'm going to connect with and they're going to get it. Or this is the person that's going to really listen to my argument and point of view. And it's the same thing like with, you know, that. Mike Creed got third in the Deer Creek Canyon Hill Climb time trial in, when he was 17. Somewhere in there is the engine to succeed at this level. I just got to keep, you know, yeah, yeah. or, and I'm, I'm sort of eternally optimistic with, with people that, that I believe in. And that can help it hurt, but eventually... I do come to grips with, okay, this isn't going to work. Yeah. And I think what, what happens is it's just the drop off is real fierce because yeah. it, it's just all of a sudden that I realize, oh my gosh, you know, I'm incredibly, I'm, I'm very tied in with this person. And I think, and the anger is going to build when their, their career now is in a state of like arrested development. Right. It stopped. And your yeah. career as a director is now growing. It's going. Yeah. So I it, totally get it. But you know, it's funny because a lot of the, I mean, and I still feel, I still feel like this is that, um, you know, for instance, Lucas user or Mike Friedman or yourself, there's three examples or guys that, or even Hartley. If you remember with Hartley, I didn't actually say Hartley, I'm not giving you a job. Do you remember that? I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't. Okay. You weren't the, yeah. I didn't tell Chad, I'm not going to give you a job on the team next year. I told him, I'm going to give you a job and pay you more than you're making right now, but not as a bike racer. I want you to be a mechanic because I think you're an incredible mechanic. And I told him, I'll pay you twice as much. I want you to be the head mechanic on the team because you do a great yeah. job. And he was really upset, you know, because I was pulling the dream away from him. But and it's the same, like Friedman, I think in, an orga in a cycling organization, Friedman is an incredible person for interpersonal interaction like as far as a sponsor liaison sure, as far sure. as someone like at the Tour de France to like take you know the sponsors out and like ride the passes oh. and he like sort of entertains them and explains the race That's to them right. and, uh, yeah. he, he'd be incredibly good at that so like if Friedman someday wants a job in my organization like I think well you know Maybe, I mean, it doesn't mean that there'll be a place the minute he wants the job sure, because sure. we hire other people and we have contracts and so on. But I think that he has a lot of ability. Lucas User, he, he's a genius when it comes to inventory and shipping and understanding, you know, the e-commerce of a, because we have a huge e-commerce business, you know, through our website. He's a, he's a genius for that stuff. So it's the thing is, is. Like, I actually value all of these people. It's just when they say, well, no, but what I want is to ride the Tour de France as a bike racer. I say, hmm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to hire you to do that. And that's hard. That's got to be hard because you've, I mean, 
you did get a ride in the Tour de France, but you right. know what it's like to be told that you can't do it at least that year or yeah. Anything. Oh yeah. No, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, I, I it's funny because and you you should you should have come or or next year you know come to the Christmas party, but uh, people are always shocked at how many riders or ex riders come to my Christmas parties, but that none of them actually race for me. Right. And they're always just sort of taken a little bit aback by that. You know that. You know that all, all these guys that, that that used to race for me—they're the ones I invited to my Christmas party. Yeah. You know, but that you know they they assume that you know that oh I'll have a Christmas party off in a castle and somewhere <laughs> in Europe and, and and invite all the 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 royalty of professional cycling. But that doesn't necessarily—I have great professional relationships with the riders on my team on a personal level. As far as a guy to hang out with, like if I if I want to choose like a guy that I have to be like on a deserted island with and just hang out with the rest of my life, I'll choose my Creedman. Yeah. Over and over and over and over and over again, I'd choose a woman over my Creedman, but <laughs> I would hope. <laughs> Do you? Uh... Pretty much any woman. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find that you're like getting better with putting distance between yourself and your current roster, or do yeah. you even try to? Yeah, I I, uh, I do a better job with that, but there are certain riders that I that I get, you know, really involved with, and it's usually just because, you know, that I believe I I always pick the guy that I really believe in and that I think is just underperforming by a little bit. I mean, you you know, it probably in a way that few people do how much effort that we put into Pate. I mean. It was, yeah, I was pretty phenomenal. I mean, it was it was started with convincing Pate that like he would ever even want to try to go back to the highest level. And it's like he he was just like, absolutely against that. You know, no, I don't. I do not ever want to race a race in Europe ever again in my life. And seeing you know, I remember inviting Pate and his wife at the time up here to have dinner and sitting down and having like a four hour conversation with him at dinner, just basically saying, Danny, you know, you, you can do this. Please trust me. Like allow me, just give me the chance to try to bring you back to a European level. And he, he, he wanted nothing to do with no, it. No, I remember that. I remember getting angry at him because he thought when you went to Europe, we were just going to get smoked and you had to take Poe to, right. to even be, you know, yeah. finishing the races. I remember that. And I mean, you gave him a, you gave him a... I was always jealous of, like, how much more attention you gave him. I remember that. I remember thinking, yeah. like... Because it was, it was clear that he was, like, the favorite son. And it was weird because then when I, when I left the team, I could still see it. But it was weird to see, like... I mean, like, Trent Lowe came up for a while. And these other guys started to kind of usurp his top spot. And then... Right. But then eventually, you know, eventually I had to you know sort of subject Danny to that same objective nature that you guys were subjected to and you know and he found another team and so on and so forth and that's and you know in a way it was so much better for him because he's he's on a team now where he's just expected to you know get what like he never has pressure on him in any race whereas I always thought of Danny as the guy who could win races I mean he didn't, want no, that. he didn't want to be the guy that won races. There's no way you could tell me Richie Port has more talent than Danny Pate. I think if Danny Pate trained like Rich Port, we would be seeing Pate. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I, I always thought of Danny as a, as a winner. Yeah. And as a guy who could make it. I didn't really know how or, or 
you know, whether it would be a GC guy or, or you know, a classics rider, I didn't really know, but I always thought that Danny could make it all the way to the top level. And physically, of course he could, but he he's just he never wanted the pressure of that. And that's where the tension between Danny and myself basically I mean, if you want to look at the root like you know, he would say, well, it was because of this. And I would say, well, it was because of this. And there was this one moment that you were up at four o'clock in the morning and I caught you and blah, 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 right. Like, the, okay. But that's all just peripheral bullshit. Like the reality of it is, is that, that I constantly pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed on Danny because Danny, like you said, was sort of like the chosen one and he didn't want that. And he didn't want that responsibility. And then as opposed to us just sitting down and having a conversation, him saying, you know, I really just kind of want to be a guy that works for other people. And, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to live up to what you think I can be. We never had that conversation and what it, you know, it ended up in, in just sort of a, you know, that he kind of cracked under the pressure and, and I kind of said, well, you know, you're never going to live up to your potential. So I don't want a guy on my team that's not trying as hard as he possibly can be trying. Yeah. And you know, and that, and that was that. So, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny I, thing. I, I find it fun because I mean, there was a time where Peyton and I were really close and I think we thought pretty similar as long as our, like when our talents aligned, right. you know, like when we were both pretty much on the same level, right. when he gets older, he got better. Right. My back like started acting up that year and I, my career went totally sideways. Right. So I feel like when my career went sideways like in a way I'm thankful for it because I mean like I had a pretty like bad not like mental breakdown but I did have like a coming to Jesus moment of like holy fuck I'm never gonna ride the Tour de France right I'm not ever gonna win a world championship and like at that point I actually kind of had to grow up because I'd been right. There was, uh, there yeah, was, from a really young age, you were groomed as as there was like the, there was nothing else I was gonna be right. Like yeah. I wasn't, it wasn't even a question that I was gonna be anything but a professional cyclist. Right. And for similar with Pate. Yeah. And I see Pate now. I mean, we don't talk much anymore if at all. Right. I I see Pate and this his talent has allowed him to stay really immature. I, and know. still call I mean he's winning because he still gets to call his own shots so he's still winning at life <laughs> without without doubt uh, I don't want to take that away from him but I think part of growing up is not being able to call your own shots anymore Right. and that probably really fucked with him when he couldn't call his own shots with you and that's why I mean he's I mean he's not he's talented so I don't want to say he's lucky but he's right. it sure is it sure did benefit him that Sky was around right and that he met Wiggins on Sky, and you know, I'm sure Wiggins really liked Pate's. Uh, yeah, they have similar senses of humor. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 No, for sure. Yeah, no, no, for sure. It's a, it's a fascinating. But yeah, I mean, that, that's what it, you know. That, there's always that rider that, that I feel like has, m- you know, more ability than they're than they're putting rubber to the road, and so I always sort of involve myself in that, and you know, and one thing I've learned is that. Yes, that may be the case that this person is enormously physically gifted, and and that uh, they have all the attributes of a win- of a win- of a true winner. But if they don't want it, you're not going to make them want it. And and that's you know that's hard because I that I and mean, that's where that's where sometimes I 
I cross that professional personal barrier because I always am trying to get them to go. You, you know, you can't plant ambition into people if no, they don't want it. Yeah, no, yeah. No. Where did I fuck up? Where was my fuck up? Where do you think objectively? No, I don't think I think you. I I don't think you really did have a screw up other than that that, that your. I think your body sort of failed you, but you didn't acknowledge it in in time to sort of get a diagnosis and 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 we wouldn't have known what was wrong either because you're the only one sort of feeling what's going on and I think it was something that probably really early on in your career if there had been a way to sort of get a diagnosis and actually go through pretty significant physical therapy and sure but I mean I understand why that's hard to acknowledge because it's it's you know you have to admit weakness in order to say okay I'm gonna have to fix this and it's not gonna be easy and in the pressures of professional cycling or you know nobody's really going to understand the problem and wait a minute you need four months away to sure. you know to fix this and when you're on the constant trajectory up too it's like right and at that point like i had never had to fight for anything right i had never had until even when i got fired by discovery when i got mono that year like that wasn't even that big of a disappointment because i was on a team with you then right so I think until my back stuff with you, like I had never once faced any kind of adversity in my life. Right. That's why, you know, a lot of times you'll see, you know, sometimes the super talents from young age succeed. Yeah. And sometimes it's the guys that are just able to improve like 2% a year for 10 years and they just chip away at it that somehow they build themselves up to I think they build character and fight. earlier on yeah and I think that was yeah. the thing that I, like, I really liked and that's what you know when we look at now you know coming up on the tour and probably who knows but probably there's this big battle for the white jersey between two Americans Talansky and, and TJ and it's fascinating to look at their two histories yeah. TJ was the golden child from you know 14 on right like yeah. he won every single national championship he pretty much went to as a junior and Tulansky was a no-name kid, like, living in his mom's station wagon, you know, racing for, like, little shitty teams, no support, you know, having to do his own water ball, whatever. And so, you know, you, you see the difference in them. And, and to me, it, you know, and I hate to say this because I, I don't ever like to... Sure. But, you know, TJ's it's more physically talented but do you think that up so that but that rougher upbringing shaped him? Well, no, no. I'm saying TJ is more physically talented, but he was always it, like you know he was always sort of he's always been the golden child, and he's had to work hard to keep improving. But like he's always been like the chosen one, right? Whereas you know Tulansky is just this ratty kid from Florida that, and he's his attitude is five times as as hardened as any bike racer I've met. I mean, Talansky does not get the results he gets, you know, on physical talent. He gets it on just, he's, I've never seen a guy just, I mean, go look at the prologue of Tour Romandy. Watch that TV coverage and watch him coming. He gets second place to Froome by just a couple seconds. But like, what it took for him to do that like he he went somewhere <laughs> mentally yeah he's he's imagined do you worry like that do you think that fight is always there or do you think there's a point where it gets satisfied and then if the fight's not there then he doesn't seem to yeah you know, i think he's a long way from that satisfaction point i just 
I mean, maybe, maybe, who knows, right? But right. I think he's a long way from that. But I mean, we should but, keep poking but Andrew, it's stick. just fascinating, like how, you know, that's why I call him Pitbull is yeah. because like he just, once he gets like something in his head, like, you know, he just grabs onto it and like he, he, he does not let. Are you going to like keep, does he have his own goals or do you, are you going to constantly throw like these weird goals at him to keep that? Well, the biggest thing, Andrew's got his own goals and they're highly ambitious and, and, you know, and I, and I respect that he's got those. What? The biggest challenge with Andrew has been making him realize that in order to be a leader in a team of cyclists, that you have to you have to respect your teammates. Compromise. Sometimes. You have to you have to compromise. Sometimes you have to realize that you know things can go wrong and that you've got to adapt. Yeah. Uh, you have to you have to be nice to the Swaniers. You, you know, because Andrew is very much like, listen, I'm here to ride you know top ten GC in the Vuelta España these people are here to serve me, you know? And like he's been so hard on himself that he he's expects- so hard on himself that he's hard on everyone around. Like he feels like, listen, you know, like I bled out of my eyeballs to get to this point. I've lived in my mom's station well, wagon. Why are your eyeballs you know, not bleeding? Exactly. And, and you have to make him realize that, listen, Andrew, you know, not everyone. In, in you the have world a certain is like amount that. of anger in you, Andrew. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> and that's great for yeah, the bike. Right. Well, let's not do it to your teammates. Right. And, and you, you, you have to, you, you know, and so my work with Andrew has been not so much, it's like the polar opposite of Danny, you know, yeah. Danny, all the Swan years love Danny, all the teammates love Danny, you know. Danny did have like this, this charisma about him. Yeah. It's people in such a atypical uh, group as cyclists, Pate was a breath of fresh air with yeah. his like joie de vivre. Right, exactly. You know. But Andrew comes in with exactly the focus and tenacity that you need to be a winner, but it didn't come easy to him. And, you know, he feels like, you know, that the the people around him, well, you know, my life has been hell, your life should be hell too. And if if we're all willing to deal with that, then we're all going to succeed. So quit slacking off and, and, you know, get on it. And, and, uh, He's the guy pushing you out of the foxhole with him. Yeah, exactly. Dude, we're getting out of here. <laughs> right. So you just, you know, I've just had to say, hey, listen, Andrew, you, you, you say thank you every day. <laughs> have Ooh. you said thank you to every, yeah, and that's one of those, I have telephone conversations. And the other thing, I would push it because he, you know, he has like, I'm going to do well in this race, I'm going to do well in this race. And I'm like, Andrew, you know, for instance, you know, he didn't really, uh, he felt like the you know the Dauphiné sort of build up for the Tour de France, and you know he got a little sick. He got a little sick before the Dauphiné, and I said, well, I sent him an email right before the Dauphiné, and I said, you know, because he said, oh, I'm sick, you know, I don't think the Dauphiné is going to go as well as I thought it would, and it, but I knew, I knew from the beginning of the year he didn't really, you know, do you want to do well in Paris? And Tour de France. He wanted to do well in Romandy too, but he, he actually did. He got that sort of cold that went around at that point in time in Europe. But he, and and uh, I mean, he was in great form at Romandy, but he didn't actually succeed in that goal. But his it was always Pyrenees, Romandy, Tour de France, like Dauphiné, build up race, right? But how do you expect his teammates to work for him if he doesn't ride well at the Dauphiné? They're going to say, well, what have you? Yeah, you got second in Pyrenees. That's how many months ago? What have you right. done for me right. lately? Right. And I explained that to him. And he sort of listened. <clears throat> and so then you get the Dauphiné and he says, oh, I'm sick. And blah, blah, blah. But I already know that in his head he really, you know. 
And I said, okay, you know, I understand you got a stomach flu. No problem. I said, listen, it's fine. Like, don't worry about it. You got a stomach flu. You got some health issues. Um, maybe we should just do the Vuelta. Let's just focus on the Vuelta. And <laughs> You're a dick. You're a dick. <laughs> How quickly did you reply? Oh, it was like I got like a three-page email. <laughs> like, I don't even know how someone types that fast. <laughs> That's amazing. You told me a story about him not wanting to come to training camp because he couldn't be in the wind the whole time. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he was so upset. <laughs> and I just said, listen, I'm just looking after your health here, man. Like, I don't want you, I don't want you doing the Tour de France if you're not totally ready. Like, we got to work, you know, develop you. And he was just like, you know, it's, he's, I mean, he's basically like, I can't believe you're, you know, making me prove myself at the doctor. I'm like, no, 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 I just want you to do the Vuelta. I don't want you to prove You're yourself. such a prick, and, and so, you know, in that last day of the doctor, when he was finally sort of over the stomach bug and everything, and I see, you know, uh, Froome and Richie Port, and Andrew's in the line waiting for, for Rohan, you know, tempoing Rohan. And you can see he kind of turns to Rowan and asks him a question, but it's like, Froome and Port are gone. They're like 30, 40 seconds ahead of the group of, with Rowan in it, right? Yeah. And you see Andrew, like... Say, hey, can I go? Can I go? And Rowan gives him the thumb up. And, like, you, if you watch that stage, it's I, like I, it's, it's like, like 300 meters to go. Like, it's just, you know, Froome and Port, and there's no one else around. And all of a sudden, out of the fog, there's just this one guy, freaking red-faced... <laughs> He's just coming up on them like a bat out of hell. That's an amazing backstory to that. And did he you, call you from the top of the mountain? No, but you can tell it was definitely like, okay. <laughs> message message delivered, Andrew. What do you one more thing I'll let you go. Call the top three of the Tour de France. Barring no obvious yeah. perfect world, none of the favorites crash out. You know, I, <clears throat> I think I think you know I think it's going to be Froome and Contador. I don't know what order, or how, but I think that those two guys are. It. But um, but I'll be optimistic and a, and a little self-serving and say that I think that the third place will be a Garmin rider. But I don't know. I don't know who. You don't know who yet. I don't know. And if that happens, I'll be be very happy. <laughs> Thanks, dude. Okay, so that's the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you enjoy it, why don't you let me know? What else do you want to hear? Who should I interview? Bother them on Twitter. Say, hey, Peter Sagan. I think you're awesome and you can do wheelies up on the cars, but you should talk to Mike Creed in that weird fucking language you do. Um... JK, don't need to talk to Sagan. But you get the point. Anyway, follow me on Twitter if you don't already. I make yolks. I make mini yolks on Twitter. And um working on a big podcast coming up. Big guest. Fantastic guest. Probably the biggest guest you can have in cycling on this fucking podcast. Alright.